0: Greetings and welcome to episode five of Beyond Hua I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today, our topic is Confucius and the Analects, the text that he is uh, presumed by historians to have been, uh, not the author, um, but the main subject, uh, a text that was believed to have been written by people who uh, were, uh, followed him were his adherents, um, in which the sayings of Confucius are recorded for posterity. Uh, it is the main text that is associated with Confucius. Now, Let's begin talking about Confucius the Man uh, before we move into Confucius the Institution, and then we'll actually talk about the text that bears, well it doesn't bear his name, uh, but which he is most closely associated with. Uh, Confucius the Man, uh, the Chinese word for Kongzi, uh, again that's the 20th century. Um, Northern Standard Mandarin Chinese pronunciation of his name. Um, We'll talk a little bit later about why Confucius is one of only two of the ancient philosophers to have his name Latinized. Uh, You know, we don't refer to him by the way that the Chinese refer to him as Kongzi, we call him Confucius. Uh, Mencius is the other and we'll talk about why only those two have a Latinized version of their name a bit later. Um, But Confucius the man we can actually deal with fairly quickly. We know very little about Confucius the man other than the fact that he did exist. Well, that's something when you're talking about the 6th century B.C., uh, it is nice to know that someone actually existed. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because other people uh, who are imagined to have existed and are associated with very important texts, um, most historians don't really believe that they did exist. You may have heard of the name Lao Tzu. It was often associated with Taoism. Lao Tzu probably is not a historical figure. Uh, Same goes for Sun Tzu, the author of the uh, art of war a uh, very popular uh, manual that uh, you know you'll find again in the new age section of bookstores and is often sort of used by corporate managers as uh, strategies for how to expand your business take over rivals and you know this sort of thing um Tzu probably didn't exist either the yellow emperor didn't exist these are fictional legendary people uh, that are invented in order to give uh, weight and substance and a reputation to texts that otherwise would not have that, or ideas that otherwise would not seem so important if their name wasn't associated with it. So Confucius, you know, we do have dates that we think are fairly reliable for him, uh, 555 to 479 B.C. Um, that's a fairly long lifespan for the 6th century B.C., uh, but basically middle of 6th century to the beginning of the 5th century B.C. Okay, uh, he lived in the state of Lu in what is now present-day Shandong, a little bit southeast of Beijing, if you're thinking about uh, the geography of China today. Um, What were his social origins? Well, this is very important, Okay, far more than the actual specific details of his life, of which we know very little. We know what his economic uh, social class was he is what we refer to in Chinese today as the class of shir. shi. S H I is how you write this down in modern-day romanization, and it's pronounced like the English word "sure." You know, like hey, yeah, sure, I'll go. Um, the shi, all right. You, this word usually gets translated as uh, knight, a scholar. Um, and eventually, gentleman is a word that is often used to translate it. In the very beginning, a sure um, really is like the equivalent of a knight in European, European medieval history. Okay, And they often had uh, a battlefield component to their identity. They would be asked to go out into battle and fight one-on-one with a noble from a rival state. Um, as time goes on, uh, men like Confucius and many of the other philosophers, they'll sort of give a more scholarly aspect to the identity, the professional identity of the Shur. What you need to know about the Shur is that they are descended from Zhou nobility, remember the Zhou dynasty, most important earliest charter state in East Asian uh, history, uh, the definition, the origin point of Huaxia civilization. They are descended from the aristocratic elite of Zhou nobility, so they can claim an August ancestry, but they're not really among the active elite anymore, all right? They're the third cousin or grandson, you know, fifth removed on the line of the family that didn't inherit all the wealth and power. And as generations pass, they can still say, I have a prestigious lineage. My great-great-great-grandpappy was someone really important, uh, but that great-great-great-great-grandpappy had 50 kids, and then they each had 50 kids, Um, and by the time five generations have passed, it's but a distant memory, and you are well outside the corridors of wealth and power in, in your family. However, you can't claim the economic and political privileges of your illustrious ancestors anymore, but you still... You still maintain the psychological trappings, the ideological worldview, and material aspirations of the true Joe elites, all right? But now you're sort of living in a state in which you're always in danger of uh, falling into poverty, okay? You think of yourself as a superior man who deserves better than the economic state that you've been brought to, Okay? Um, but you don't really have the inherited wealth anymore or titles that can actually put substance behind that aspiration. All right? So we can think of the sure as a downwardly mobile aristocratic class. Okay? What are the implications of this? They have to work. They need to make a living. They cannot just count on an inheritance. Or, you know, the, the proceeds of investments of the family, or the rent that comes from owning the field, you know, agricultural fields, or a tax base, All right? They need to make a living somehow, or they will fall into poverty. But the fact that they subscribe to the psychological, ideological world of the aristocrats, the educated elites, means that they are not about to engage in dirty work. Alright, they're not going to get their hands dirty. They're not about to say, hey, you know what, we're down on our luck now, we need to revive our family fortunes, I'm going to suck it up, go out into the fields, and, you know, become a prosperous farmer, and maybe, you know, we'll eventually strike it rich again. No, 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 no. They're not getting their hands dirty. Okay? What they will do is they will attempt to sell their only remaining commodity that has value. Education. Okay? Okay? They have access to education, their ancestors were educated, they they can move about, they can get an audience with educated elites, the people who have wealth and power, and through that they can attempt to peddle ideas, abstract moral ideas about the world that they hope will prove attractive to someone who actually has wealth and power. So these people are educated, but divorced from state employment. They want to be employed by a state. So what sort of ideas do they come up with? What sort of program, ideological program, do they peddle? Well, they create and codify ideas about a golden age in the distant past. All right. They come up with models of moral emulation for present day rulers what sort of areas do they claim expertise on? Well, they claim expertise in history. Okay, they claim to be an expert on everything that happened in the past. Both things that are historically verifiable, they could actually pull out records on bamboo slips and say, look, we know this happened because it says so right here. And things that we would today regard as legendary. They had no written proof. They had no hard evidence that this stuff actually happened or existed, but it was widely believed to have happened. It was written about, you know, there were oral stories circulating about this in uh, apocryphal form to our ears today. Uh, But they had memorized these things. Okay. In their minds was memorized all extant literature, oral stories about history. How the world that we live in came to be. Okay, so what they could do is they could weave a program of policy direction for a king that, was draw, that drew heavily upon it concrete examples from what was regarded as real history in their day and age. And this was a double-edged sword. Many rulers liked this because they thought, oh, this lends substance and credence and credibility to a policy I want to pursue because my sure here that I've employed um, has given me three concrete examples of rulers who did this in the past, and it was successful. It could also be dangerous and seem as a threat to some rulers, All right, as it was for the first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi, the emperor of the Qin dynasty, 221 to 206 BC, the first empire, to sort of subsume all the other states that had existed prior to that time period. Uh, the first emperor would see these, uh, uh, these shi as a threat. And he would say, they're constantly bringing out historical examples to criticize my policies and say, this is what virtuous rulers did in the past, and I'm not doing that. Therefore, the implication is I'm not virtuous. And so the first emperor of the Qin dynasty locked up the books, the bamboo slips of his empire, put them under lock and key, and you had to apply for permission to be able to access the books of his day. Because he wanted to make sure he kept tabs on who had access to this sort of knowledge, because knowledge was dangerous. You could use knowledge of history to critique current rulers, and he didn't like that. There was a story that would be then circulated by the Han Dynasty, which succeeds the Qin Dynasty, 200 BC to 200 AD. And the Han Dynasty wants to make the Qin Emperor look really bad, and they came up with the story that he didn't just lock up the books of the kingdom, he actually buried alive the Confucian scholars and burned the books. And for 2,000 years, that story was taken at face value as if it was real history. Uh, that's the power that historians and those who monopolize the written word often have over us. They can create a story, say it's true, and if we don't have evidence to the contrary, um, we can fall for the trap and perpetuate it and think it's true. And it was only uh, through the insights of archaeology in the 20th century and 21st century that we started to realize, you know what? This is highly unlikely of a story. It seems like the Qing Dynasty just locked up the books, and kept close surveillance on Confucian scholars, but they didn't bury them alive and burn the books. All right, so knowledge of history. Right, knowledge of history, and part and parcel of that is the second area of expertise that they claimed knowledge of ritual. In Chinese, li. All right, knowledge of ritual. Ritual is very important. Okay, ritual, the rites, are basically prescriptions for how human beings should act and comport themselves in every conceivable thing that they could possibly do in their daily lives. You're going to meet your 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 wife's cousin on her dad's side. This is how you act in his presence. You're going to meet the ruler of another state. This is how you're going to dress. And this is the marks of insignia that you are both allowed to have. You're going to have a banquet you know, with one of your ministers. This is where he needs to sit and where you're going to sit. You're going to sacrifice to your ancestors this is how you're going to do it all right and if you do all if you follow the rights correctly then you will reach the optimum result okay so between the rights and history the sure basically said everything that's worth knowing is in the written texts that harken back to a golden age i've studied those i'm i have mastered history i've mastered the rites in these classic books, and everything worth knowing, as I said in the previous episode, everything worth knowing in this world is in there, and I can mediate that knowledge for you. Of course, there's things that we don't know about the world, but those are trivial matters that are not important. Uh, One of my favorite phrases, one historian came up to describe the age of science much later, you know, we're talking 1600s, 1700s, whatever, is that science was um, the discovery of ignorance, (laughs) <laughs> All right, uh, that's a wonderful phrase. The discovery of ignorance, the realization that uh, um, instead of saying everything that's worth knowing is known and anything we don't know is not important enough to learn, uh, the discovery of ignorance, science, said that there are things that we don't know and they are worth knowing. All right, but that's a long ways off. All right, um, so the sure, what they begin to do, what we begin to see from Confucius's time onward is they become wandering advisors, peddling their models of ideal human interactions and prescriptions for world harmony in an increasingly complex and violent world. The key here, though, is they need employment. They need to please a ruler and prove useful to him in some capacity. All right, I, when I first started teaching this, I used to say that the that, 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 that the sure were like, uh, you know, Ancient Karl Rove's, you can tell, because I was harkening back to a famous advisor to George Bush, um, and now is going to start going with Steve Bannon, you know, ancient Steve Bannon's, the advisor to Trump and whatnot, the people who are imagined to orchestrate the PR campaign and policy prescriptions for the real power behind the scenes, the real guy who's going to rule, and then this person is the advisor who sort of massages their image tries to put policy prescriptions in their ears, and then when the ruler does something stupid, they make it look good. They put a benevolent gloss on it for public consumption. Okay. Remember, the Joe came up with this idea about the mandate of heaven, how uh, sort of it moralizes political legitimacy, the right to be in power. The sure will now take this one step further, and they'll say, you know about that mandate of heaven? We're going to give you a prescription on how to get the Mandate of Heaven and how to keep it. The Mandate of Heaven requires that the ruler be virtuous, that they have duh. We're going to tell you how to get duh. And they all had their own prescriptions, all right? But each one of the shur was insistent that only a shur could properly teach a ruler how to obtain virtue, even if his prescription was different from another shur but there was no mistaking where virtue was supposed to come from. Okay? It came from a sure, whom you sponsored financially by giving him an advisory post of some sort in your court. It wasn't just something that existed in an objective sense. It was a subjective quality that different sure would tell we would give you a different roadmap on how to obtain. And they want you to pay them to teach you how to get to that virtue, or at least pay them. They'll give you advice on how to obtain virtue. And if you don't take it, they'll still tell the people that you took their advice and that you're virtuous. Okay. The unspoken agreement was as follows. In return for helping to cultivate and broadcast a benevolent image of a ruler and his state, the sure who helped construct this image would be rewarded with political and economic resources to further his own livelihood and school of thought. I often like to think of the sure as public relations agents who are willing to make a deal with the devil. That is, I will tell the world how great you and your political product is, and you in turn will give me a paycheck for doing so. And I truly hope that you'll take my advice and you'll become moral and benevolent. They're not totally cynical here, but if you don't, they're still gonna take your paycheck. And they're still going to try to project a benevolent image of you, to the to, to the rest of the world. All right, they're like a publicist for an oil company who has an oil spill, you know, or something like Exxon. I've got them already revealing my age, giving examples from the 1980s. Uh, what's a odious company that needs a good PR campaign? Uh, Enron. All right, that's more to our generation. Uh, it's sad when you teach for a while. I haven't even been teaching that long, and already I find that all my cultural references. Uh, historical references are to things that my students don't even really understand. I used to make references to Seinfeld, and I realized they don't have a clue what I'm saying, do they? <laughs> They've never seen Seinfeld. Uh, oh, man, I'm getting old. Um, Mencius came to precisely this conclusion, okay, that he was being used. He came to the belated realization, he admitted this, that a ruler had only employed him in order to convince other rulers and ministers that this was a benevolent ruler. Look at me! I populate my court with moral philosophers who give me no financial recompense or daily practical value. And they tell me how to be a good ruler, so I must be a good ruler, even if I heed none of their advice whatsoever. Menchus was disillusioned at that, to realize, damn, we're getting used. Were tools of oppression. <laughs> okay, We need to get over this New Age, Victorian, modern, nationalistic interpretation of these people as August, eternal sages of ancient wisdom. All right, They're products of their day and age. And their day and age was a precarious age when it seemed as though the civilized state of the Hua Xia cultural sphere was on the verge of extinction. Because it was no longer, by Confucius's day, by the sixth century, it's no longer the Zhou all alone as the preeminent civilized power of the world. All right? for about from thousand to seven hundred BC, the Zhou was pretty much alone in claiming that mantle. All right? there were no other literate states that that followed the rites and prescriptions for civil for civilization equal to the Zhou in power. But remember, the Zhou's real power only lasts for a couple hundred years. By Confucius' day, there are multiple states. <laughs> right, I mean, he works for the state of Lu. He doesn't work for the state of Zhou. And eventually you're going to get into an era we call the Warring States Period. You know, roughly 450 BC to 220 BC or so. About a 200 year period. In which you have several hundred states that exist. All crowded in on one another. In what is now Northern China. We don't even really have Southern China at this point, okay? This is the Yellow River to the immediate north and south of the Yellow River, west and east. And we're not even talking about really the south of the Yangtze River, except maybe for one state, the the state of Chu. All right, and all these states refer to themselves as Huaxia. We are civilized. That's our cultural identity, and we are the the Zhongguo states, the central states, plural. And these states were afraid. There was anxiety that were destroying each other. They were all fighting each other, trying to claim the mantle of the protector of the Zhou. And in the meantime, warfare is getting worse and worse and worse. Another way of putting this is that the Zhou state lived in a a created, really, a unipolar world. Only one major self-proclaimed civilized power. There were other people, other states, but the Zhou spoke the loudest, had all the literacy. And was the strongest. Right. Now what you're getting by Confucius's age, and it's only going to get worse, is a multipolar world of hundreds of civilized equals. Self-proclaimed civilized equals, obviously. Other people who are not included in this definition would beg to differ. And they would say, hey, 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 we're civilized. What are you talking about? Hundreds of these civilized states that follow similar rites, similar rituals, read similar texts. Yes, there's a lot of diversity, a lot of variation, but, you know... It's still the Sinitic script and related forms of speech. They're building similar types of architecture and palace and walls. They're sharing the, the Book of Odes together. The same songs circulate among these states. Okay, Each one of these hundreds of civilized equals is trying to annihilate the other in the guise of moral rectitude. Because if you want to replace the Joe, if you want to be the preeminent power, you can't do so as a bloodthirsty conqueror. You have to give the impression that you deserve to emerge victorious of all these hundreds of states, all these hundreds of jungle states. Okay? And you need the Shur for that. And the Shur have quite a turbulent career. Right, Confucius is the first major famous one whose name endures. But we're going to have Moltze, uh, Menchus, Hanfei Tzu, We're going to talk about each one of these in turn because they're all extremely important. Confucius and Mencius are just the most famous for reasons that will become clear soon enough. Because it was convenient for them to be famous for those who are in power. Um, Most sure are professional failures. They're not always noble or, or altruistic. Many come off as petty, grumpy men. Mencius especially. He's an ornery old guy. Um, But as I said, most were failures in their careers. They didn't actually get a powerful ministerial post advising a powerful king like they wanted. And in lieu of that, many of those who identified as Confucians made a living on the side as basically the ambulance chasers of the pre-modern world, of the ancient world, because that was the other side of the Confucians. You know all about history. You know all about rights. Well, if the kings don't want to listen to your prescriptions about history and rights, uh, what else can you do with the rights? What else can you do with that educated knowledge? Well, you can try and convince the lower elites and anyone who has money that the proper rights are essential for funerals. Or any you know, marriages, funerals, whatever you need to celebrate or commemorate in the case of a funeral. Um, has to be done properly or else... You're messing with the stars, <laughs> and you're messing with your fate, and bad things will happen to you. And so is we'll see, the next shirt we're going to talk about in the next episode, uh, he'll criticize the Confucians as basically ambulance chasers. Every single they're so happy when someone dies, because they rush over there and they tell the family, we're ready to preside over your funeral, and you have to have us, or you're going to mess up that funeral, and Grandpa won't make it to the other world, the spiritual world. And he's going to haunt you, so you need me. My fee is $350, thank you. So they monopolize literacy, they monopolize the writing and interpretation of history. And at the level of kings and advisors in that rarefied air, if they get access to those courts, they have, it's a, they're a double-edged sword for the people who interact with them. They may be able to make your rule look benevolent if you're a bloodthirsty king, and they might be willing to do that. They might be willing to do a de- deal with the devil. But they might also leave your service and tell their followers that you're a horrible, horrible man and use you as a counterexample. In other words, they might run a smear campaign against you. So there's a lot of tensions going on here. But you gotta understand that these people are educated, downwardly mobile, educated educated uh, professionals who need to work for a living and they peddle their education of history and the rights to rulers. Almost certainly they have benevolent noble motives, but when they come into contact with the way that power is really exercised in the real world, uh, it, gets, it gets messy in a hurry. And I want you to ask, as you're thinking about all these sure, which we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, why do some become more famous than others? Why Confucius and not Molze? Why have you almost certainly never heard of Molze? why have you might you know why is it likely that you've heard of mencius at least the name in passing but you've never heard of shunzi okay the answer as we'll touch on over the next couple of episodes is because people who have power wealth and power to finance your existence have a vested interest in keeping the name of confucius and mencius alive and prominent because they're useful to the status quo of a particular time and place Now, Confucius, too, was largely unsuccessful. We don't have any records that he ever really got a powerful ministerial post advising an important king. Um, Didn't really ever get that. But he's remembered fondly by his own students. This is another way you make a living. You're either an ambulance chaser or you amass your own following of students who help support you. And then they keep your name alive. This is all oral. But eventually, one of these students or a group of these students will write stuff down. And your words will end up being recorded and passed down from generation to generation. Okay. It's probably a mix of the two. You chase, you know, you chase ambulances and you try to have your own students, a mix of the two. And uh, every once in a while you make a, you make a uh, ambitious bid to gain the ear of a king at court. And every once in a while you win the lottery and the king hires you. But most of the time you lose the lottery. It's a waste of time and effort and the kings don't listen to you. But at least you can use them as a counterexample in your next sermon to your followers and they'll write it down. And we can talk about it today. Now, that's Confucius the man and his times. We need to talk briefly about Confucius the institution—a very different thing. Okay, Confucius does not really become the be-all, end-all of you know the orthodox mainstream philosophy and ideological standard in East Asia until the Han Dynasty, the Han Empire, 200 BC to 200 AD. And what's going on here is that you're finally seeing the shift. From a multipolar world back to a unipolar world for the first time since the Zhou dynasty was in existence. Okay. The unipolar world, the Han Dynasty, in which you only have one major hegemon and no serious peer. Right? There's no serious challenger to the Han Dynasty that also looks like the Han Dynasty. There are nomadic challengers to the Han Dynasty, but the Han would say they're not civilized. And they look nothing like us in their institutions, their mode of life, anything. Okay? You do not have political peers or equals in this world. You regard yourself as the only major civilized power in the world. That's a unipolar world. By the time of the Han Dynasty, the age of the Shur is over. Okay? We're back to a unipolar world. And this unipolar world wants to have a benevolent public face. It wants an ideology that keeps the world unipolar. In other words, they want to they perpetuate the status quo in which there is only the Han dynasty and we're the best. So, of course, we should never be overthrown. Our dynasty should live forever. Wan sui, wan sui, you know, as long as possible. So they want an ideology that puts a benevolent face on the status quo. And one that doesn't get so specific in its prescriptions That it's easy to say, ooh, there's contradictions everywhere. You're not doing what Confucius said. In, in, In other words, you want something that has vague and ambiguous statements on broadly defined topics. Doesn't get too specific with its prescriptions. Okay. Now the Han Dynasty will set up their own academies libraries, institutions that study and house the books, all the classics, all the literary uh, works that were in existence. And they'll sponsor scholars who work there and come up with orthodox interpretations. This is how this tract or text should be interpreted. And Confucius will emerge victorious in this process. Okay? It will be imagined that Confucius had a hand, as I'm talked about in the first in the previous episode, in editing all of the classics, the Book of Documents, the Book of Odes, the Spring and Autumn Annals, the Book of Rites, the Book of Changes, now all referred to as classic, classics, the classic of documents, the classic of odes, and on and on. And the Confucians then are useful to the Han dynasty because they basically support, their ideology supports the status quo. Now I'm being vague here. Now I'm being ambiguous. You're like, what the hell is Professor Jacobs talking about? Well, let me give you some specific examples. Let's get into the Analects. All right, let's get into the details of some of the vague, non-specific things that Confucius talked about that proved useful to the Han Dynasty. That said, hey, this can, this guy, this, this guy's ideas will help us entrench our power and reinforce. The status quo and give it a benevolent face. In a way that some of the other sure, some of the other philosophers that we're going to talk about, didn't do. Okay? Schunze, is. we're gonna see, will say, man is evil. No state's gonna hold that up as their official ideology. Yes, we believe man is evil. I don't think so. Our religion might do that. But a state is gonna say, people are good. And it's our duty to bring that goodness out. Mencius, who is much more famous, not surprisingly, will say, man is good. All right, so what did Confucius say? All right, let's go to the Analects. The Analects is unique among the texts of the Shur that we're going to be looking at and being, uh, it, it, it's not a linear narrative. Okay, there's no, there's no consistent story that's being told. There's no consistent authoritative narration or voice of an author. All right. Uh, there are many books in the Analects, like chapters, so to speak, um, and they're, they're, com- they're composed of a collection of individual statements, which are often cryptic and often do not connect from one statement to the next. All right, it's not a clear story with a logical progression. All right, in other words, you can take almost any line out of the Analects remove it from its position in the Analects, take it out. And it can be a standalone statement that seems to profess some sort of vague cryptic wisdom about the world. All right, the Analects are the perfect fortune cookie material. I wouldn't be surprised if the companies that make fortune cookies in American Chinese restaurants, if they don't have a copy of the Analects there, and they just take every single line of the Analects, put them in a blender, and then pull them out and put them inside fortune cookies because a lot of the things that you'll read in the Analects sound like they could you know come right out of a, out of a fortune cookie, and then you could paste them all back into a book, and the book would still read similar you know in a similar way as it currently does, because there is no logical narrative story progression in the Analects. This this is part of the ambiguity that I'm talking about um, that will prove useful to later states that say, hey, you know, we can we can turn this, we can interpret this in ways that are useful to us. All right, now, so we have vague themes, a lot of ambiguity, no narrative continuity. Uh, if the Analects weren't reinterpreted by Mencius a couple hundred years later, uh, they probably would have been forgotten. Oftentimes when people are thinking of the Analects, or they're thinking of Confucianism, they're actually thinking of Mencius' reinterpretation of Confucianism of several hundred years later, but we'll get to that later. The first major theme, I'm only going to talk about a couple of the major themes, because we're going to have all the philosophers deal with very similar topics, um, and I don't want to ruin the surprise of all the things that other people are going to talk about as well. We're going to talk about some of the major ones that Confucius comes up with. Filial piety, all right, that's, that's top, top, top of the list, obviously. Uh, filial piety that underlings should respect and listen to those who are above them. In a very vague sense, obviously, more specifically, it's a son should obey the father. Okay, Confucius says in the second line of the Analects of the first book, a person who is filial and and respectful of elders rarely defies superiors. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty blunt. And that's a statement that people who empower are going to love to hear. Oh, this filial piety is great. If you're filial, then you respect people who are above you and who actually wield power, and you don't defy them. Now, filial piety is intended to be enacted from the bottom level of society all the way up. If you think of, of uh, you know uh, uh, East Asian society as a pyramid scheme, all the village houses at the, at the lowest level of society down at the bottom. And if every single family, each family unit practices filial piety... The sons obey the fathers. The wives obey the husbands. Okay? Then the family unit will be at peace. That's the thinking behind filial piety. And then you take those villages, and you have a magistrate above them. And if all the families are filial, and obey the magistrate, who is now their figurative father, then the county will be at peace. You take all the magistrates of all the counties, and if they're filial to the governor-generals who control multiple provinces, then all the provinces will be at peace. And if all the governors and the governor-generals are filial to the emperor in the capital, or the king, depending on how large and diverse of a state we're talking about, then the world will be at peace, because they're filial to him. Who is the emperor or king filial to? He's called the son of heaven. That gives you a clue. The emperor or king is going to be then in turn filial to heaven. Well, that isn't that convenient. It doesn't really exist. Uh, So there's a lot of room for the emperor to do what he wants without human oversight. But nonetheless, the theory is coherent. Confucius said, uh, Confucius in uh, uh, book two, they they have a question being asked of him. Why are you, Confucius, not in government? His response? Being a filial son and brother is taking part in government. Filial piety is a political program for peace and harmony. On the micro level, it's just a father and a son, a wife and her husband. On the macro level, it's the entire realm and all the families and all the officials and the emperor, each obeying the level of authority above them. Okay, that's the true meaning of filial piety when you think of it in terms of how to run a state. Now you're getting a good sense of why Confucius is very useful to the Han Dynasty, aren't you? It's not because he espouses eternal wisdom that is great for any time and place. It's because it reinforces the status quo and those who already wield power. Of course you're going to love filial piety. It keeps you in power. If the people truly practice filial piety, there will be no rebellions. So the filial piety is, you know, its importance cannot be overstated. And there would be separate books called the classic of filial piety, things that would evolve from this, that in and of themselves would become required reading, sometimes as punishment. I love to talk about court cases from later from later eras of Chinese history. In my classes, we don't have court cases that survive from Confucius's day, uh, but we do have ones that survive later. Uh, many come from the Song Dynasty or the Qing Dynasty or the Ming Dynasty. This is after 1000 AD. Um, and we see in one of these court cases that the punishment for an unfilial son, a, a, a father or a mother, could take their son to court if he was seen as unfilial. That's how serious and important this was. Because it threatens the very fabric of human society if the family is not, it has an unfilial member subverting it with, from within. Um, and an unfilial son, his punishment when he's taken before the district management is to go to the local school every day for a month and read aloud the classic of filial piety. Okay. Now, at the level of the county, like I said, the magistrate, Well, the way that we've been talking about filial piety, I'm very cynical, right? I'm giving a very cynical view of it, that it reinforces the status quo. Uh, The people who actually espouse and promote the doctrine of filial piety, however, always put the most positive spin on it possible. All right? And so what we see also in some of these court cases from later on, you get the acting official, the magistrates who are in charge of anywhere from 30,000 to a million people in their county. And the way that they interpret Disobedience and disorder and uh, illegal activity occurring within their jurisdiction is to say it's my fault. It's my fault if unfilial men exist in my district. And this leads us to another one of the things that Confucius talks about a lot the rectification of names. That to truly be a virtuous person, a virtuous gentleman, or for society to act, to, to, to be harmonious and function properly. Everyone has their place, their, their profession, their identity, wife, mother, husband, carpenter, king, soldier. And your duty in life is to truly fulfill the spirit of that name. And he says, a father is not a father if he doesn't act like a father. A carpenter is not truly a carpenter if he doesn't do, if he doesn't fulfill the expectations of his profession. A little bit of subversiveness here. A king is not a king if he doesn't act like a king. Mencius will take that farther and explore the possibility that maybe there is actually a strain of Confucianism that can justify rebellion. If a king is not acting like a king, you know, the noble lofty ideals that a king is supposed to embody then he can be overthrown because he's not a king. Right, so the acting official who has elite, you know, an immoral district, immoral people in his district, uh, unfilial sons who come and the mothers are complaining, my son doesn't respect me. One official writes down on his court case, I do not deserve to be magistrate if such unfilial men exist in my district. Another one says, the blame is mine when confronted with a lawsuit. I am the leading official in this district, and yet a nearby neighborhood has produced such a rebellious son. Now, does he actually believe this, or is this window dressing designed for his superiors to look at and say, "Oh, he truly believes in filial piety. Ah, there's no way to know. We're not mind readers. Could be both. But he's following the expectations, the rhetorical expectations of filial piety and saying, you know what, I have responsibility for unfilial behavior, just like a father is slightly responsible if his son is unfilial. I am responsible as a magistrate if the people of my district are unruly. So filial piety. Lots of nuance and aspects to this um, that can be interpreted in different ways. The Confucians and the Analects also talk about the process of transformation and the cultivation of a gentleman, the true gentleman, the gentleman who possesses virtue and tries to impart that virtue to other people in the world, usually kings and people who have power so they, so they can then put the world in order. Uh, uh, tran- transformation is a very important concept. It's the idea that we are not fated to be evil or inadequate? Okay, all people, there is a goodness inside that can be brought out to allow you to realize your true potential to fulfill your duties to society and embody the name of your station in life, whatever it may be. See, there's some contradictory ideas here of whether or not Confucius subscribes to fatalism or not. On the one hand, he seems to say a lot of things that suggest that that you are what you are, you need to do what you are as good as you can do it. And then there's other things that he says that seems to suggest that uh, you can transform yourself into something better. His critics will latch on to the fatalistic aspect to it and say, look, Confucius says that we're all doomed to our station in life and there's no social mobility. But Both strains are present in the Analects. Uh, so, if you can become a true gentleman, if you can transform yourself, how do you transform yourself through education? Education and the rights are extremely important in this process of it, of uh, learning about the uh, of, 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 of becoming a civilized, educated person. And if you can fulfill this transformation, you will become sort of a superman, and there will be a widespread belief that the truly educated man. Who embodies the teachings of Confucius is a sort of superhuman agent in this world who can improve the rest of the world simply by virtue of having virtue. He exudes his goodness throughout the world. He has this line in the Analects about how a gentleman can change the world, improve the morals of the people, like the wind beats down the barley. Uh, Like a magician. He can improve the people's behavior by setting an example himself as a virtuous gentleman. And everyone recognizes this. Everyone is supposed to be able to recognize a truly virtuous person. Confucius says in the first book, line 10, he arrives in a new state and wants to have information about this new state. He does not seek it out. The true gentleman does not seek it out. He simply embodies the virtues of a gentleman. He acts courteous, refined, respectful, observes the rights of how you should act in a different state. And the information comes to him because the world recognizes this is a true gentleman who has transformed himself and is doing good in the world. Ritual. The Confucians, if nothing else, they held themselves up as masters of ritual. Rituals for the dead, rituals for the living, rituals for every conceivable aspect and human interaction that you will have in your life. And he wanted to emphasize, if you want to, again, not be, take the cynical road here and call them ambulance chasers. If you want to have a more positive ex- explication, then we can look to book two, line seven and eight, in which Confucius says that there must be feeling behind the ritual. It cannot be wrote. It cannot be mechanical, just going through the motions of it. Filial piety, ritual, you need to have humanity behind it. Ren, in modern day Chinese pronunciation, which would not be the pronunciation that Confucius would have used when he said this word. There needs to be feeling behind it. It's more than just the outer forms. There has to be sincerity behind these rituals. Okay. Okay. They always talked about mastering the classics. The Book of Odes were extremely important. This was the process of education. Learning and ritual were one and the same. And later, when you get uh, more fully developed governments, larger governments, empires, i mean, an, an, an imperial bureaucracy... Uh, You'll see a recurrent feature in many different Chinese dynasties all the way up until the 20th century. Actually, the last dynasty would do this as well. There is one of the ministries, one of the most important ministries is the Ministry of Rights. They actually have a Ministry of Rights. It's a major government department. And the Ministry of Rights is responsible for schools and education and monitoring education and regulating people who become teachers and take the civil service examination system. Because to be educated was to be someone who had mastered the rights, which the Confucians claim to be the ultimate interpreters of. All right, now, I'm not going to actually go into any more detail about the different aspects and the different themes and topics that the Analects um, um, touches upon. Because the Analects are so frustratingly vague and ambiguous, and they employ this non-linear, non-narrative style. All right, I said before, and I'll say it again here at the close of this episode, if not for later philosophers like Mencius, who inject logic and narrative continuity into their reinterpretations of the Analects and the Confucian legacy, Confucius himself would have been forgotten. Where is the logic, where where is a literary tradition of invoking logic and narrative continuity going to come from? We have not yet seen it. We will see it in our next episode with uh, the sure named Moltsu. I hope you join me for the next episode, Moltsu and the Invention of Logic. <laughs>